Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk HR. I'm joined today by Wendy McCartney, and we're going to talk about a subject that she's she's quite an expert in, and you can definitely go find her on LinkedIn and you can ask her questions about this. And this is something I've gone through myself and didn't and still didn't recognise it myself until probably about a year later. Um, and it's the subject of burnout at work. So we're going to talk about some signs, some opportunities, how you can support people going through it. We're going to sort of strategies to prevent the burnout and and wendy's going to help guide us through this entire thing this this is your your specialist subject if, if we're on mastermind isn't it wendy <laughs> it is indeed I've, I've certainly been researching this specifically for about maybe about just over five years we are having experienced burnout myself at work on two occasions i began the first time i didn't recognize what it was and the second time I really knew what it was and I did a lot of work to recover uh, and I recovered quite quickly because I knew what I was doing this time. No, I'm still, I don't know if this is, this is the um, male mentality, so to speak. I'm still in denial about my level of burnout and what I was like, but I'm told I was horror to be around. Okay. Um, And so in prep for the session, I I was having a bit of a a look about what, how people identify now. 2019 World Health Organization recognized burnout as an op- occupational phenomenon. Yes. Shocked me and described it as the 11th provision of international classified diseases. So burnout, they're, they're recognizing as a disease. And the syndrome tied to chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. Completely true. Yes. And, you know, it's it's also, you know, some organizations, for example, put a lot of pressure on their people to quite an extent and people get there's healthy stress where you feel you're being pushed enough to improve as an individual but then there's bad stress that is when you're pushed too hard so for example again managers take a lot of responsibility in this in the workplace where you know sometimes they will overwork somebody because they're talented because oh they're good at that let's keep giving them projects let's keep giving them projects until a person who could spin five plates brilliantly has 20 plates of spinning and they just can't cope with the workload. So they start doing lots and lots of extra hours to cope with the workload. And then, you know, you can't sustain that over a six month period and you will definitely be hitting burnout by that point. And it it happens quite often to talented people. And people who are confident and self-assured. So it's not just people who are maybe quieter, you know, it really is across the board. And sometimes you get it as a strategy. When a manager feels threatened by an individual, they will give them so much work they know they can't cope with it. So there's multiple strands to this. That's that's an evil approach. I mean, I I was reading, like, it's categorised, it's emotional exhaustion, it's depersonalisation. So again... We're talking about hybrid working and, and, and people, it's that, you know, I, I talked about it on World Mental Health Day, people withdrawing in from themselves and not being approachable, conversational, not on instrument, you know, and it's really hard to spot some of this. Mm. And a perceived lack of accomplishment. So, you know, feeling detached from your job, not feeling like it, it's working and stuff like that. And, and all of that, like reading it all makes sense to me because – um, I was in a situation. I, I was. It was. It was during COVID. It was the second lockdown, actually, and um, we had an online training business like this, and that was running perfectly because people can study. 
but the apprenticeship business where people were being put on furlough, people were being taken out of their work. If they were on furlough, they couldn't study their apprenticeship. If they couldn't study their apprenticeship, we couldn't draw down the money. So we had to put learning coaches on furlough and then all the money gets really mismanaged so that you're having to make redundancies of people, which we unfortunately had to go through that process. Mm. And the whole, it just became this big thing where you're trying your best to fight and save as many staff as possible, but you can't hire, you can't get new apprentices on program, mm. recruit yeah. anybody. You mm. couldn't help existing apprenticeships that were on furlough because the rules were in place that you couldn't unless they let them back into work and then organizations had to pay them a salary for it and it, it turned into this really really complicated issue where you're trying to manage it and you're trying to ensure everything's fair for everyone but you're working like i I'm, i must have sat you know 12 hours a day in front of zoom calls of everyone constantly saying this is what's happening this is what's happening this is what we do and it got to the point where i was completely disassociated Mm. and and it, i didn't even see it myself that that's that's the really interesting part for me so i didn't see it, it was my wife that saw it and said you, you need to do something about this mm. um but it, it's just it, it just happens doesn't it it's not just like one day you wake up and you burn out it's just it's like it's like a wick isn't it i guess you just get closer and closer and closer until that sort of either you notice it yourself or somebody else notices it and, and tells you that you've got to do something about it I agree. That's that's a very common experience, you know. So I meet people because um, I, although I work in a business, I also do um, coaching on the outside for people who are burned out. And the the one thing I always say to them is, you know, this isn't this didn't start now. This started six to twelve months ago, and you didn't notice the signals perhaps so one of the first things that happens when somebody is starting to burn out is they start to speak differently use different tones and you can notice they're a bit more edgy and a bit more argumentative about things defensive in nature and when, as soon as you start to see those mechanisms that's usually the first sign that something's going on and also you know some people go really quiet and withdraw um and all you're looking for is a slight change in behavior and if you know the person uh, you know my husband was on a call with somebody the other day and I said to him you know just to give you an example the tone of his voice is completely different from any call I've ever heard before you should really check in what's going on there because you've just launched a huge project that that tone sounded despondent to me um you should check out what's going on and it's noticing those little things tone behavior uh, and you can even do that in video calls so even and you know if we had lockdowns or we're in a situation where we're working from home have your video on ask them to have the video on say you don't care how they look you just want to make sure they're okay uh, yeah. and and have those those conversations with people because as a manager you kind of know when somebody's offbeat if you've spent enough time getting to know them I think that's a really important point because there's there's so many people where you know you you this organization they're a top performer and stuff like that and something something's just gone gone awry and and we, we were talking yesterday actually about discretionary effort and how people you know HR's job is sometimes to manage that discretionary effort so that companies don't take the mick and, and mm. people aren't expected to do too much and you burn them out because people say it so flippantly to each other but you know oh if you were if you were gone tomorrow your company would just replace you 
Mm. And I don't think companies think like that. Well, I've never thought like that as a thing, but there isn't a ring of truth to it, which is if, for example, you did leave, they would replace you. This is the nature of work. But their job is to manage your work. Your job is to manage the balance, I guess, between work and and life. And and it's a really hard thing to know, isn't it? Because a lot of people tie their identity to their job quite a lot. So how do you sort of disassociate the two? Yeah, that 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 is the complexity because your work is only one part of your identity. You have your identity outside of work with your family. You have identity with your friends. You probably behave slightly differently with different people as well to get the best outcome. So you probably have multiple identities, but quite often people associate their work identity the strongest. What I would say to you is the first the first thing you should do to prevent work burnout is to know yourself who are you what's important to you what do you really care about and what does what do you want to do what do you enjoy doing what do you not enjoy doing simply asking those questions and sometimes you'll you'll be at a point where you don't actually know the answer and you need to do a bit more work thinking about it and you know, reading some books as well, if that's your thing, or pod, listen to podcasts, anything to raise your awareness about answering those types of questions. Because once you understand yourself, you're going to notice when you start to burn out. Because once you know yourself well enough, you're going to notice the signals that something's changed in you. You know, things like not feeling motivated to do things that you were previously motivated about is a big indication you're burning out. Now, I did some research, again, in terms of some of the common signs. Now, according to Gallup, a study of employees frequently working long hours um, and unimagin- unmanageable workloads are 63% more likely to experience burnout. Now, this probably means why you get burnout so or so much more in, in the senior side of things where there's people being put in pressure for hit financial targets, hit these change targets, do this, do this, do this. And and obviously you've got the other side of things. So you're trying to balance the potentially the impossible and and probably middle managers suffer most from this where you've got employees communicating directly to them about this. And you've got senior managers going, we need you to change this. And they've got that sort of sandwich pressure, Mm. especially middle managers where often they're accidental managers have not done it for the first time. And they're trying to find this perfect balance of making everyone happy unaware that that's impossible because you can never make everybody happy. There'll always be somebody that's unhappy with them. <laughs> um, so it's funny, isn't it? 60 unmanageable workloads, the ability to say no, and it's a, it's a big problem, I think. I think in British culture and working culture that I've seen, which is you don't say no, you say yes, and then you just power through, which yeah. is really not fair. And I'd agree... Uh, it's, and I would say, because of course I am Scottish, right? <laughs> I would say in Scotland, it's, I noticed it much more in, since I moved to England than in Scotland, because people freely say no and will critique your work overtly in the organisations I worked in. But in England, I've noticed there's a, well, you shouldn't say that, you might hurt somebody's feelings, you need to talk around things. And that, again, creates that kind of culture of, 
well, I shouldn't complain, I shouldn't say it's too hard, I should just get on with it and pushing through. And interestingly enough, what happens is it's not always middle managers. Staff get it because if a middle manager's mm. in, under pressure, they will push it downwards okay. and burn out their employees, particularly the employees who are, you know, the get-it-done type of people, the people who really drive things and get it done. They always get a much heavier workload than the people who plod, and they are more susceptible to burnout also. Another really interesting one is employees who feel they're often treated unfairly at work are 2.3 times more likely to report a high burnout rate. Mm. And my mind goes straight to um, graduate schemes. So I've worked in hundreds of graduate schemes over the years, and, and some of them at some of the top firms, shall we say, have this expectation of you work... 12 14 hours a day constantly do whatever we if we say you come in you come in and you work and you work for three and a half years until you've got your qualification and they expect 50 percent of people to leave yeah. because they can't keep up with the pace yes yeah shocking that, isn't it yeah. <laughs> i mean that's, that's just not fair i know but here's the thing you know a lot of people, you know, graduates know that as well, right? So some of them think, well, it's a good name. And when I get out, I'll, you know, they're not going to stay, right? They're going to go there, yeah. get their qualification, do the time they need to do afterwards so they don't need to pay it back, right? That's, that's just do, deal with reality. And eventually the, the drums of graduates, will, the gossip will whoosh, right and everybody will know what's going on and you know big law firms for example and i won't name names they have that culture we'll give you 80 grand we'll pay for this but you know you're going to be working you know yeah. working long long days and the weekends too and you make a choice do i want that reputation of working there and, and can i hack it and some people like that test but again it is it's not a great culture because you're basically setting people up to fail and burn themselves out at the end of that and you know it but some people actually choose to do it <laughs> yeah I, I i can understand why you would you know you've got 80 grand worth of training you've got this name on on your cv you get introduced a lot and and a lot of the time it's the theories more appealing than the actual practice yeah um and i think it potentially you know and if you make it through it's a bit like SAS training, isn't it? You make <laughs> yeah. it through and you cope, then you go, oh, well, it's my turn to do it to somebody else. And, yeah. it, and it kind of creates that that culture of, well, it's okay, it's acceptable to treat people like this. It's acceptable to push people to their limits because I did it and I got through it, but people have different levels of stress management and people have different peaks and troughs in their lives of when they can take on more and they can take on less. I agree. I think there's a lack of recognition for that sometimes. And sometimes you have to be careful with these sorts of cultures as well, because, you know, you could be excluding groups because, you know, they've got a mm. disability or they've got an illness that they're managing very well, but this will push it off the scale. And, you know, indirectly, they need to be careful. They're not discriminating because that kind of driven culture could do that. Yeah. The, the other part that got me really interested um, in the subject as well was the the lack of clarity and how burnout can build lack of clarity because of anxiety. 
Mm. So everyone says, you know, annual reviews, for example, if you've got an annual appraisal, anxiety goes through the roof 70% of people mm. as opposed to a regular feedback culture. And it's, but people want annual reviews, they want to know what they're doing well, they want to know where they can improve. And it's, it's a lack of clarity that can also create burnout because let's say you're running on the wrong treadmill in the wrong way and then you get told you're doing it wrong. So then you run even harder. But and as, a, as an organization, sometimes it's really important, isn't it, to give people that absolute clarity as to this is our expectation. This is what good looks like. This is what great looks like. Um, and this is how we want to help you get there as opposed to just going, work it out. We're too busy. You work it out, and then when they do it, you go, you've done it wrong. And, and that sort of whole burnout of anxiety starts to happen. Yeah, and anxiety is a key indicator of burnout, uh, as well as things like sleep and what you eat. And, you know, all these things start to layer on top of, you know, the process of burnout and, and getting further and more entrenched in your life and then having health implications. Because, you know, if you are... are working constantly to keep going your cortisol levels are going to be increased and cortisol is a great hormone first thing in the morning to get you up and get you going but it's not a great hormone at eight o'clock at night because you will block your sleep hormones to be able to sleep at night with because they can't come mm -hmm. out when cortisol is high your sleep hormones are suppressed so you need the cortisol to come down and that's normal. So in the day it goes high, during the day it goes low and it goes low enough so that melatonin can increase so that you can go to sleep at night. And that's why these two things, will they interact very tightly. So anxiety, sleep, because your hormones are being pumped and adjusted based on burnout. When you're really on, on edge at work all the time, you're probably drinking lots of coffee and your cortisol levels are really high. And if you're still doing that at seven o'clock at night, you're not going to sleep well. And that will perpetuate the, it's like a cycle and it just mm. keeps perpetuating the cycle. I, I mean, I drink coffee at seven o'clock at night, so I, there's no point <laughs> coffee, though, is there? No, it's no, fine. It's I still sleep. Thing, it's all good. Yeah, and here's the thing about it, right? Some people are fast metabolizers of coffee and some people are slow metabolizers of coffee. So I've had mine tested. I'm a fast metabolizer of coffee. I can have one at um, eight o'clock at night and go to bed and sleep Same. relatively well and good quality. But if you're a slow metabolizer of coffee and you have coffee at seven o'clock, you might sleep, but what, how much deep sleep you get, the thing that actually makes you feel awake the next day and sharp the next day, that's what gets hit every time. Yeah, if my wife has coffee after midday, she's it ruins her entire sleep plan. Which, yeah, that's common for people who slow metabolize caffeine. I, I, I would, I would hate that. <laughs> um, so let's talk about strategies to to prevent burnout. Like, yeah. You, you're, you're currently in HR, you're watching this, you're going, okay, well, how do we stop our workforce being burnt out? Um, what sort of things should companies be doing, be aware of or be doing to ensure that they're not burning out their workforce? Yeah, so I always think that you should be doing uh, training for your managers to understand the indicators of burnout and making them understand what it costs. And I also, you know, when I'm dealing, when I look at burnout from a, a cost perspective as well, because 
some people only listen to costs, some people will listen to the human element, and some people will only listen to the risks. So I tend to look at it from my right, how much is it costing the organisation when somebody's burned out and they're performance has dipped and what's the cost implications of that if they're off sick what's the cost implications of that and if they leave what was the seat challenge and how much is that costing the business to the recruitment and then when you merge all those charges and show what it's doing to the organization you get a lot of people's attention i also want to work with the managers to understand because some managers are micromanagers and they they contribute to burnout far more than anybody else will uh, and the studies all and research are pretty solid in this area. Micromanagers lead to burnouts much faster than any type of manager. So again, it's educating that manager that their style does not work and how they could adapt their style to be better at managing their people and how to let go. And again, micromanagers, what you've got to understand about them is they are not happy, secure people. Happy, secure people don't feel the need to control others. People who themselves are afraid need, feel they need to control others. So we need to take it from a slightly more compassionate perspective and how we change their behaviour and move them away from being... Because, you know, happy, competent managers don't just don't do those sorts of things. What I completely agree. And, and it's, it's funny, isn't it? Like if, if you trust people, then you trust them to come to you when they make a mistake. Absolutely. If you don't trust them to come to you when you make a mistake, that's probably because you've created that some, some sort of barrier between you. Um, one of the things that I was looking at in terms of strategies to prevent burnout, and this, this is, I've seen this in both, both types of companies, is um, regular breaks vacation time has been shown to increase the, uh, decrease, sorry, the likelihood of burnout. In a studies, employees who did not take regular breaks were 2.8 times more likely to experience burnout. Mm. And it's that. I've worked in a company where, you know, people treat you like a badge of honour. Oh, I've got 15 days holiday left at the end of the year. And you're like, well, great. <laughs> uh, and then you've, and then there's other companies where they're saying constantly, you know, these are your holidays. Make sure that you take them. You can't carry them off and we want you to take them in year. You know, it's important that you take some time away and, and catch up and reflect and and rejuvenate and, and be your best self but it, it, it's another really good indicator isn't it of a company culture that they've probably got a burnout culture if people are playing with that badge of honor of i've got 10 days holiday left yeah absolutely you know these these sorts of behaviors of being proud that you haven't taken all your leave or you take time out to recover from your job and and how strong and capable you are and how you can take it these sorts of cultures probably contribute to a toxic culture in my opinion and in some in some way and i'm not saying everyone who does that is in a toxic culture but it can mm -hmm. contribute to that but i also think you know people have to not always this is this is slightly controversial so I, I, excuse the controversial term here we go but people have to also say to themselves does this manager and this organization really care about me if they don't i have to look after myself I'll come and do my job, but I'm going to take care of myself, balance my life. And you have to actually not care a little as much about what you're doing and your contribution. You'll still do your best every day, but yeah. you need to look after yourself. And it's, and it's not being selfish. It's about 
it's tipping the balance back. The organisation has the power. If you can, I'm going to look after myself and tip the power base back to balance because you are preventing yourself burning out. You take two weeks solid annual leave every year. Never take it in smaller chunks. Always take two weeks and then the rest in smaller chunks because that two weeks will give you time to just calm yourself, get away from the office. And we know, like in our organisation, you have to, it's mandatory you took two weeks leave and you're only allowed to carry over to three to five days and you have to take your leave. We're really strict about it. Just purely from a, a lot of our businesses client facing and they need time away. And things like that make a big difference, be quite strict about that. But also managing yourself, for me, I've done looked at lots of research papers on this and the two things that are the game changers. There's lots of wonderful things you can do, but the two game changers are managing yourself and looking after yourself a bit more. So if that means you need to be a bit more selfish, do it. To managers being completely aware of burnout, competent in their jobs as a manager and making sure that people are okay. If you can do those two things in itself, it's a big game changer because lots of organisations are doing more well-being, they're doing more indications and they're doing lots of support. But actually, when you look at the research, so Oxford University did some research on this and they looked at, well, all these well-being initiatives we're doing, what are they actually doing? And CEOs think they're doing great stuff, but actually, mm, it's not as great as everybody thinks it is. If you don't tackle bad management and a culture of you've got to work yourself as hard, 14 hours a day as hard as you can, and no one's taking care of themselves, if you don't deal with those two things, no matter what else you do, it won't make any difference. A couple of things that you've said that, again, no, I, I, I've experienced it, but I, I, I don't understand it. The two weeks holiday is a really interesting one for me. Yeah. Like taking two weeks, because reflect back to, to, to when I was burnt out, I hadn't taken a holiday. It was COVID, couldn't take a holiday. You know, you were mm. just working constantly and stuff like that. So it's not even you've got that, end, you've got that finish line in sight of, right, I'm going to work until this and then I'm going to have two weeks off and then reset and then I'm going to go. So you didn't have a finish line. It was just, it was constant. Mm. Second lockdown. So it was nearly two years without a proper switch off and a proper two week break. I don't, I, I don't think I took one. Okay. Um, and and it's, it's things that make sense. It's, it's things that, you know, logically make sense. So like, as we work, you know, this is new business. This theory is, you know, well, we're nearly two years old, so there should be a lot of stress in this. But it's not because this. And but I've also got a two-week holiday booked at the end of the year, mm -hmm. and that's that's the goal, that's the target, that's what we're working towards, and stuff like that. And so all of that makes sense because it all logically fits into place for me, anyway. For and what I went through, just never really sort of connected the dots. Um. So that's really interesting. In terms of other strategies to prevent burnout, in terms of how companies should address managers, should bosses be speaking to everyone saying, look, take your holiday, we recommend that you take two weeks, should it be coming out from HR, this is our, this is our recommendation, make sure that you do it. There's no, you know, there's no participation awards for people that don't take the holiday. Blah, blah. And should companies be going really that sort of, 
strong message because I'm thinking about a couple of businesses at the moment that are about to go into a really busy period and they're saying no one can take any holidays. Yeah, and you get that with them. There are times where that might happen, right? So, you you know, look, in real in real terms, you should speak to your manager about when projects are coming up and book the two weeks leave when it's not coming, right? But if you're coming to the end of the year and you haven't taken any, okay, it, it's, it's negotiating, do you always need to be in? And, you know, look, there's going to be 10 people there and it's the beginning of the project. At that point, I can see that, you know, the midpoint, we all need to be here, but at this initiation stage, we might not to be. And it's negotiating with your employer. You know, I haven't taken two weeks leave this year. I probably need to fit it in. Or taking it over um, the Christmas period because that's because it's quieter in business and, and yeah. most businesses at that point. Even taking two weeks then, I know it's busy, Right, and it's not the most—it's perhaps not the most relaxing time to do it because you're maybe busy doing stuff. But at least it's two weeks of something else apart from work, right? In, in COVID, for example, um, myself and others and my team—I said to people, "You still need to take two weeks leave." And we made—we sat as a team and talked about how we would do that. And you know, we—I booked a two-week yoga course. I was doing yoga for five hours a day. Whilst I was doing the course, some people booked a meditation course. Some people just wanted to chill and catch up on Netflix. Some people, you know, they, they actually, we all agreed what we would do over the next two weeks during COVID just to switch off from work. No one's checking emails. No one's, and I was checking whether people were logging in. And then I would, you know, say to them when they come back, don't log in again. You just need to get away because, you know, I don't know about you, but when I go on holiday abroad, the first week I am unloading from the week from work. I am not relaxing. Yeah, I might be sitting on the beach, but I'm still thinking about work. <laughs> we're we're really good at doing it, so I can't sit still. Um, I have a <laughs> problem in that, um, which is odd because I sit still all day every day working in front of a computer. Um, <laughs> so, we're, like, we're off doing stuff, and and it kind of forces you to switch off because suddenly you know you're in this situation are you doing this walk are you mm. you're experiencing this sort of thing are you you going swimming um so yeah I'm, i make sure that i'm i'm doing stuff and then suddenly it sort of it switches and then about three days out from coming back my brain goes oh i'm about to go back yeah and, and everything sort of kicks into an order a little bit for me um mm. so that's kind of how i approach it but you're right i mean like some of the things you mentioned like coping with burnout or you know, it talks here about mindfulness, meditation practices have been shown to reduce symptoms. Several studies, one study demonstrated a 14% reduction in burnout symptoms yes. among healthcare professionals after an eight-week mindfulness program in terms yes. of showing people how to sort of disconnect um, from from the pressures because I think that's, that's where people struggle the most. It's just constantly in their head. They're constantly thinking about it. And it's because they care. Of course. But they also need to care about themselves and that switch off and how you balance it all. And it's, it's making a conscious decision to think about yourself a lot of for a lot of people struggle with, don't they? They do. And you know, it's I'll give you an example of how how it work, how it can work out. Okay, so I myself was under a lot of um pressure and um I did a lot of self-care work. You know, I, I am a meditation teacher as well, and I, I also do mindfulness, and I meditate every day. 
maybe five minutes. If it's a really calm day, it's five minutes. If it's a really full-on chaotic day, it's 20 minutes. And I just do it in the train. I just shut my eyes, listen to my favourite songs and meditate. And since I've been doing that and since I have got in control of my mind, so I'm, I mean, thoughts still come in and out, but mm. I'm quite a competent meditator, right? Because I've been doing it since I was 16. So um, I am quite, um, I, I enjoy the process. But I had to stick with a year of just closing my eyes and relaxing and breathing and the, the head going shoo, 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 shoo. <laughs> and after a period of time, it just stopped and it's calmed further and further. But when I'm in stressful situations, it'll bolt up again, right? And what, when I was talking about managing yourself, mindfulness and meditation, people think, it's, oh, I need to sit with my legs crossed, put my fingers together and um, um. It's not that. I just sit yeah. the shut my eyes, put my feet flat on the ground, put my hands on my legs, shut my eyes, and nobody knows what I'm doing, right? And I'm listening to music to block out all the noise of the train and the chaos that's on the train. And I just breathe, simply breathe, big belly breaths in and out. And then what I'll do is over a period of time, I'll maybe do three in, three out, and then I take it to 10 in, 10 out. And I'm slowing my brainwaves because we know scientifically when you're, in, when you're panicking, right, so say something happens in your life and you get into panic, you go, <laughs> you start to breathe really quickly. And then that then says to your brain, panic, pump the hormones for panic, okay? And you should only really get those hormones when you're running away from a bear or a tiger or your life is in danger, right? Oh, Not like a bear in Berry, don't know. <laughs> I, don't know if I will panic. Just when you're in danger. So we know that the way you breathe impacts your brain and vice versa the way you think will impact your breathing those two things interact and work together so when you go into panic state your breathing changes in response to that but we also know when you breathe it will alter the patterns in your brain too so slow deep breaths will will slow down hormone production and bring in new elements that will calm you. So I'm not, that data makes perfect sense to me. And I have helped other people to meditate, people who I, can, I can't meditate as a rhetoric. I'll never be able to meditate. And it's, it, it's what their perception of meditation and mindfulness is. Mindfulness is actually just being present and not in here, listening to the internal chatter. One of the other things that people mention um in terms of reducing burnout is again you know a thing people struggle to do during during lockdown was physical activity mm. um so a uk study employers who engaged in physical activities are three times a week at 25 percent lower burnout rates because again i think you probably mentioned that it's that mind as much as your breathing gets more rapid on you but your mindfulness you're focusing on on that exercise you're focusing on that activity you're actually taking your brain away from the thing that is causing you burnout i, I am going to assume that that is the answer to it yeah that is um, certainly part of it an exercise depending on what you do can produce positive endorphins to make you feel better but also you burn cortisol when you exercise so that hormone i talked to you about that's um can go really high when you get yourself into a deep anxiety state or you're overworking when you exercise it dips back down 
So you've got a double whammy of good hormones and endorphins coming from the exercise. You also have the reducing cortisol, but you also, you might be thinking about work, but you're, if you, it's good to concentrate on, say you're running, your feet hitting the ground, that's mindfulness. If you're running, don't put hardcore music in, okay? Put calm music and just notice the trees. Notice the, how green the fields are. Notice the environment around you, and that is mindfulness running. Okay, if you're doing weight training, you know when you're lifting. So you, you know, so you're going to do something like, um, say, push press, right? And just notice what muscles are contracting, and eventually you begin to notice these things. So when I, if I go for a jog, I notice my feet hitting the ground, and I might concentrate on that sensation while I'm running. And that in itself is just pure mindfulness and exercise. You don't need to sit and go, um, or breathe. You can just, when you're out jogging, you're doing your weights, you are at yoga, and yoga teaches you how to focus on that and feel the sensations. But you can do that in any exercise. And that's you done your mindfulness for the day. You don't need to do anything else. The final one in terms of coping is social support. Um, and how that plays a critical role, you know, workers with strong social support work report a 40% lower rate of burnout. And and I think this is probably an area where I, I, I would I would use a, a gender stereotype, which is where women are more open in terms of communicating what, what they're struggling with, what they're doing, and men are just like, oh, it's work, uh, and then disassociating. But there is still a social element of going out, seeing people, doing something, because, again, even if you're talking about nothing, you're not thinking about work. You're not thinking about what's causing you stress and panic and anxiety and changing your breathing and stuff like that. So regardless of if you're openly having a conversation about what you're struggling with at work or if you're just talking about, um, you know, from a man's perspective, if you could take a bear in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> because there's one in Berry now, it seems. It's <laughs> It's still that element of removing yourself from the stress, isn't it? Yeah, and also, you know, you get feel-good hormones when you're with your friends that you really like and you have a good connection with. Um, that, that again, is, is, is very hormone-based. You get lots of positive mm. hormones coming from that. And you, you, you enjoy the, you know, banter, the laugh, the fun, and it, it does. And, and, you, and if you go out and some of them are maybe your work colleagues, you might take the piss out of a situation. Sorry, I shouldn't have swore. <laughs> you might take the mick out of a situation that's already happened to be able to cope with it, right? And that's how you cope. You joke about it and you make fun of it. And those social circumstances help you to do that. You don't need to sit with somebody and go, oh, this is my problem. How can I, how can we fix it? You can have a laugh, right? You can make fun of the manager who's picking on you. You can make fun of the situation, see the comical side of it and just have a great laugh with your friends. And those sorts of things all help massively. And I'm assuming, it, again, you know, laughing, joking, disassociate, all releases different different chemicals. That yes. I, I guess the, the interesting part for from a um, British and definitely Scottish culture is, is normally these situations happen where alcohol is involved and they have a very different effect on you. But yeah. it's still getting away from that stress and it's still important to try and get away from that stress. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important just to take yourself away from the situation and see it differently as well and just, have a, and, you know, having fun about it. And social circumstances give you the opportunity. You know, I've certainly worked in organisations where we go out and socialise together and have a laugh about what's going on and then you just don't feel as bad about it. And watching comedies, actually, so what, what a lot of GPs, doctors now will say to people who are really ill, get your favourite comedian out and watch it regularly. When you see if you're... You can manage your mood by changing what you do. So, you know, watching a comedian that you find really funny, it will change your mood like that. I think, yeah, I, I completely see that. And, I, and and it got me thinking about social media and how that can actually help push you down the rabbit hole of burnout as well, because social media feeds on the extreme views of things. So it'll look at the, you know, the most negative side of, you know, the left politics on the most negative side of the right politics. And then you'll have the left being outraged by the right and the right being outraged by the left. And and, and all that is just stress. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you're observing stress. You're observing people being upset by things. You're observing, and it's just more stress. Whereas actually a comedian's just relief. It's, it's laughing. It's, it's, it's positive. Um, I guess it's positive emotions, isn't it? As opposed to all this stress and pressure and probably social media plays a bad role in burnout at times, because obviously if you're not feeling great and then you're watching not great things and obviously then it feeds you even more not great things. If you watch not great things and you're caught in this, this cycle, I think that's probably one of the areas where people are experiencing burnout so much more because there's no relief from negative influence. I, I completely agree with that. And there's lots of research on social media and the negative impact it can have on individuals because comparison, particularly people maybe not conscious that they're comparing themselves to others. And, and, and I don't know if you notice on LinkedIn, because one of my friends did some research on this, how people are always talking about how great they are, how, what promotion they got, what qualification they got. And only recently have you started to see people saying things that are not going so well, probably that that started to come in a little bit. But again, there's that constant, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not good enough. I'm not achieving mm -hmm. these things. I'm not doing, and people can compare themselves. And, you know, the best comparison, if you're into comparison and that's a habit you like, compare yourself with yesterday. Don't compare yourself with others. You're only going to set yourself down a spiral of negativity. So where was I yesterday? What did I do? What have I achieved? That's the best comparison. If you like doing that, that is the optimal comparison. <laughs> yeah, uh, so much so. Like it's it's it, so many people you say, oh, they've got this, they've got this. And you don't know how people have put themselves in certain situations, but you're making these assumptions and everyone pitches everything being infinitely better because the grass is always greener, regardless of the situation. And and then you find yourself going, oh, well, I need to work 16 hours a day because that person said they got up at 5 a.m. And, and went to the gym and did this and then worked for 12 hours and made 20 million pounds. And then they went back to the gym and worked out for another four hours and blah, blah, blah. But you see it all over the place, don't you? And, you do. Um, you know, at no point does anyone say, you know what, I couldn't be asking out of bed today. That's exactly what I like. like, good for you, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> so it's it's a really it's a really valuable point i think from a burnout perspective which is yeah compare yourself to you do you feel better than you do today or have i helped 
the people that I love and care about feel better than they did the other day. If I helped them in any way, shape or form, mm. use that as a comparison. Um, and that might help you sort of take steps forward. Now, we're going to finish just with some, I, I, I found some unpopular opinions with regards to burnout, which I'm going to give to you, Wendy. Okay. Uh, and you can tell me whether you think yes, no, or get in the bin. Um, <laughs> some argue that conversations around burnout have become overly normalized and that feeling burnout is often used casually, which can potentially dilute the gravity of the issue. Yeah. And, and, and I agree. I agree with that to some, to some degree, because what we don't want to do is close people down from talking about it. But what, what I would say is yes, what can happen is we can normalize it as that is just work culture. Um, yeah. and accept it as part of work culture and then that will make sure that we don't actually help people and we'll just continue the burnout machine as I, as I call it um, and I think I do want you do want people to talk about it with and get the right help and support but you're right it's you have to be careful because things can become very normal and institutionalized very quickly um, so there's a balance to be sought there so one hand, I do want people to talk about it as genuine, but some people say they're burnt out and they're not, and I think that yeah. can be a problem too in diluting it. Now, the next one is some people believe burnout is a as a result of a personal shortcoming, a lack of <laughs> resilience rather than a systematic systemic workplace issue. If you go to the gym, if you lift weights, if you do a run, if you get up at 5am and then get a cold shower, you won't, you won't have burnout, you're just not resilient enough. Bin that. That is absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Because the number of people I have met who are high performer superstars making a lot of money, they burn out just like everybody else. Absolute nonsense. It's not about that. It shows to me, people, and, and this is the thing for me, I think, and, and I probably was this person at some point in my career, I think it shows a lack of exposure to that yourself so you're yeah. going okay just because i haven't experienced it well it must be false mm. you know it must just be these people aren't as strong or as committed or as they but people go through different things and different experiences and, and probably yeah you're in a period where you're like well i've never had a struggle so it must be a resilience thing mm. um but that just shows a complete lack of empathy and probably compassion and understanding how circumstances can happen. So, also, yes, Libra. Sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say, well, also, you know, that way some people, you know, something happens to their partner, they get ill, their children, mm. something happens to their children, something happens to their parents. That will contribute to burnout in a really big way, particularly if you have a very demanding job. And we are all going to experience that at some point. Therefore, a little bit of compassion and empathy because you never know what somebody's going through at home because they might not tell you. We all experience these things. And just because you haven't experienced it yet doesn't mean it's not coming. So, you know, if you when you when your time comes, you will be hoping that people will treat you with compassion and kindness. So it's quite uh, you're right. If you haven't experienced these things, it's harder. Right. I, I get that. And I'm not apportioning blame. But it's good to think well you know that could happen to me as easily as that could happen to you and, and try to stand in another person's shoes before you make a decision about them 
it's, it's not difficult, is it, to really think about, well, what circumstances would have me really struggling? Yeah. Um, That's true. Now, the final one, which you've kind of already alluded to, which is there's a notion in some circles that focusing on individual interventions like mindfulness and time management may neglect larger structural issues that contribute to burnout. Yes. And I think you've probably already said this earlier, so I think this is one where I think you're, you're very much on board with this, which is, yes, do the mindfulness, yes, understand the cortisol, yes, understand how all those things happen, but it doesn't solve the organisational approach and, and the management and, and how you go about changing a business culture and all that side of things. I think you've already alluded to that, but that's the last one. So we'll <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that because, you know, if your boss is playing psychological games and destroying psychological safety in a group and targets you specifically, you can do all the mindfulness yoga, sleep workshops, and throw everything at it and just be able to cope, but you're not thriving, you're surviving. So it, it doesn't matter. You know, you might be the, the gym guru, healthy eating, doing everything you can. You still will probably hit burnout as a result of that. That's why I think institutional change is a, it needs to happen. And there you have it. We've gone through identifying burnout strategies, coping with burnout, and also giving it a shed when there's some unpopular opinions. If you are struggling with work, there is a whole range of things that you should, you know, you can speak to and you can reach out to. Please, if, if for whatever reason you're feeling tired, exhausted, you, you can't get up in the morning, things just seem to be a lot harder and you're pulling yourself away from communicating with your colleagues and stuff like that, you may actually be experiencing some level of burnout and speaking to somebody approaching someone doing some research on it actually the the longer you let it go the harder the road to recovery is i took a six month break before i i, I set this company up because of the burnout that i was having mm. and the sooner you address issues the quicker you can get back on the road to recovery the quicker you're learning about yourself the more you learn about yourself as wendy mentioned the more you're able to cope with these changes and these variables and as they happen this has been Let's Talk HR. This has been talking about burnout. Thank you very much for Wendy for giving us all these insights into burnout and how to cope. Um, we will catch you on the next one. Take care. Thank you.